Preface to the Mystery of the Supernatural by Henri de Lubac The purpose of this book is not wholly historical. It is theological as well, yet it hardly oversteps the bounds of positive theology. The author has made no attempt to transpose or even extend the theories of the schoolmen. In his statement of the problems, as in his choice of arguments, and even in the vocabulary used, he has closely followed the tradition he would love to see better known by adopting the expressions given to it by the great masters of scholasticism. His work is one among an already long series of tedious commentaries on the natural but impracticable desire to see God, according to St. Thomas. A literary form we have good reason to feel that we have had enough of. Though he does not deny that an attempt to go further might be legitimate, or in some cases even necessary, the author does not himself want either to open fresh perspectives or to take fresh material from more up-to-date problems, or to make use of categories not considered previously. He has purposely set himself a more basic and more modest task starting from the classic question of the relationship between nature and the supernatural. He has restricted his theological reflections to the sphere of formal ontology where they are normally carried out without any attempt to make them more concrete. He has not, therefore, made use of either of the covenant vocabulary or of that of the Christian mystery. He has even forborne to enter the discussion centering upon the efficaciousness of grace and free will. He has not therefore studied either the metamorphosis of the appetite of nature or the ecstasy of beatitude. A fortiori, then, he has considered neither the mediating role of the incarnate word nor the entry of the adopted creature into the relations of the Trinity. All he has tried to demonstrate is contained in a single idea. It is to establish or illustrate the one idea that all his arguments are directed, and he would instantly abandon any that turned out in the end to compromise or obscure it. It is a simple idea which, to be accurately grasped, requires only that one be willing to look with a single gaze on all the lines of thought which converge upon it. It is a paradoxical idea, as are all the ideas that bear upon the reality of our being in relation to God. It is a concrete idea, expressing something which, though essential to human experience, is nevertheless fatally blocked up or misinterpreted apart from revelation. It is an idea which is in itself independent of many of the particular theories and arguments into which I propose not to enter, although I shall mention their underlying motives. It is an idea which has never been in any way contradicted by the teachings or warnings of the magisterium, but rather defended or rectified against all denials or deviations of any kind. It is an idea so fundamental that it has been proclaimed often with total unanimity in all the ages of Christendom. At the beginning of our own age, it seemed for a time to become obscured. Some set it aside with the notion that they were simply giving the autonomy of nature and natural philosophy their due. 
Others did so in the name of a pure orthodoxy, rightly wanting to condemn the excesses which sought to deny something of the Creator's sovereign freedom and the complete gratuitousness of His gift. They did not realize that they were in fact falling into the opposite error and watering down the traditional idea. This misunderstanding showed a certain timorousness, to say the least, in face of the denials of the period. It might be taken to be the indirect sign of a wavering faith. For sixty years now, in spite of occasional, somewhat compromising deviations, and in spite also of obstinate and sometimes even violent opposition from people who misconstrued its meaning, the idea has been gaining ground again. The old tradition, which we are coming to explore more deeply, shows it up with great clarity. However, it is yet again in danger of being eclipsed. Fresh assaults are being made upon it from two directions. On the one hand, though the dualist, or perhaps better, separatist, thesis has finished its course, it may be only just beginning to bear its bitterest fruit. As fast as professional theology moves away from it, it becomes so much more widespread in the sphere of practical action. While wishing to protect the supernatural from any contamination, people had in fact exiled it altogether, both from intellectual and from social life, leaving the field free to be taken over by secularism. Today, that secularism, following its course, is beginning to enter the minds even of Christians. They too seek to find a harmony with all things based upon an idea of nature which might be acceptable to a deist or an atheist. Everything that comes from Christ, everything that should lead to him, is pushed so far into the background as to look like disappearing for good. The last word in Christian progress and the entry into adulthood would then appear to consist in a total secularization which would expel God not merely from the life of society, but from culture and even from personal relationships. On the other hand, however, the teachings which at the beginning of the century were summed up under the generic title of doctrines of imminence are also coming to the fore. Under some quite subtle forms, they imperceptibly color the outlook of many Christians whose intelligence and self-awareness are of the more demanding kind. Man will never cease to want to be enclosed within himself. It is chiefly a question of a historical imminentism, concentrating completely upon history and envisaging the end of its development as a universal reconciliation, which both in itself and in the means needed to achieve it, would exclude everything supernatural. Where it is sometimes deceptive is when this imminentism of our age easily develops a dialectic of transcendence actually within the human being. It becomes all the more attractive as presenting itself as the heir of Christianity, at least fully understood. Far from rejecting it, it claims at last to fulfill perfectly the hopes awakened by Christ in men's hearts. And it is all the more formidable in being borne along on the most powerful current of thought in the age, and in presenting itself as making the only valid response to the challenge of historicity. I realize that the only way to refute it 
is by absorption. And I am confident that Christian thinking, once again, will be adequate to the task. Our own thinking will draw, and here and there has already begun to do so, new depth from it. But meanwhile, some among us may be in danger of succumbing, while others who should be protecting them are so involved in the controversies of the past as not to recognize this present and pressing danger. Faith must provide the needed answer and must do so before it is too late to be of help to many, for it is a question of ourselves and all that we are and have. Through all man's changing cultures, the human condition remains fundamentally the same. Man's relationship with God, who has made us for himself and never ceases to draw us toward him, remains essentially the same. There is always in primeval nature, just as in nature as developed through history, a depth, a living response, a natural desire, a force upon which freely given grace finds something to work. As the Greeks used to say, the incarnate Logos gathers the seeds planted by the creating Logos. The Latins expressed it in different terms. Man, as God's image, is fitted to enter in communion with him in liberty of mind and an initiative of love. This is what we must, if only as a duty to God, continue to clarify with all the means that this age places at our disposal. This is the fundamental truth which we must never allow to be obscured or compromised. It is in this spirit that I add my modest effort to so many others, not seeking to develop every aspect of this vast truth, nor claiming to explore totally even the single aspect I am considering here. I am, of course, well aware that the way to salvation does not depend on any speculative science. Yet, Methodical reflection can still have some value in pointing out the way, removing obstacles, and indicating the routes to be avoided. Thus, it seems to me at the moment that whatever contributes to exploring tradition, which is the norm of all future speculation, whatever throws light on anything in past theological thought that can help to make believers aware and explicitly aware of the sense of their eternal vocation, is more important than ever. Fecistinos ad te, Deus. You have made us for yourself, O God.